My three longest novels are all about, all set in London, and they are London novels. I do very much want and expect the city to be a presence in the book and to stand for all cities, you know, at this stage. I just wondered how much of London Fields was generated by this sense of kind of end-of-century angst. How, how much was that something that you really felt? I really felt it, and I think I still do feel it. I think, you know, particularly biblical weather, I think is going to be a, a big feature of 20, 21st century life. So here's welcoming listeners of My Martin Amos to the third episode on the series, where I am very grateful and delighted to be joined by columnist for the Financial Times, Janan Ganesh, who would like to speak to me today about London Fields, by far one of Martin Amos's best known, and I would say the second of the trilogy of big novels written in the late 80s and mid 90s, those being money, London Fields itself, and then the information. It's a pleasure to have you with me, Janan. Thank you very much for coming on the series. I want to whether we could just start really by talking about the novel itself, which is sat on the table in front of us here. I see that it was bought somewhere for 50p, it looks like. It's clearly been around. And you told me just now, before we started recording, that you spent a number of years dipping into it at 50-page stretches almost daily. What has drawn you back to this novel time and time again, if we can start there? Oh, the, the, the copy we have here is one of, I think, six that I've had over the years. It's the original 1989 hardback. Um, and that gives you an indication of how fixated I was. I'd, I think four in paperback, two in hardback, acquired in any number of um, secondhand bookshops over the years. And what drew me to it and kept me smitten and dipping into it on a kind of, you know, three or four times a week basis was ultimately the richness of the language. It's the densest prose of any Amos novel. The evocation of London in the 1980s, which I'm just about old enough to remember, just the, the grime, the layer of uh, grit and dirt on every physical service I can just about um, recall. And then if you're a columnist, you know, you deal in ideas. We really get paid to come up with an idea every week or two ideas every week. And Amos has this way of in passing, completely in passing, saying something that um, generates a complete internally coherent column idea, whether it's the kind of uh, trauma of a difficult childbirth and family, which is what one of the characters goes through, um, or the way London has changed from being pretty rough, down at heel relatively uh, to what it is now, which is almost rich to a fault and difficult to inhabit for someone like Keith Talent, the main character. Um, so the prose, the physical texture of life, which I, which I recall, and ultimately the ideas kept me hooked in a way that maybe two or three books ever by anyone uh, have have achieved before. You mentioned there vaguely recalling London in the late eighties. Could you could you give us a flavour for that London of that time that that you recognised when you read London Fields? Yeah, there, there was a. If you look at any film or TV show set in London until about the mid eighties, you will notice 
literally a layer of grime, maybe even, I don't know whether it's industrial soot, but there's a dark patina on every physical surface, mm. including, I think, St. Pancras, the Houses of Parliament, uh, any of those off-white pretend classical buildings in Bloomsbury or even Whitehall where the government departments are. This is not just the grain of VHS. Well, I've asked people who are 10 years older than me, Was it? Is it just an optical illusion to do with uh, DVDs not being invented yet and digital filming not being invented yet? And they said, no, there was absolutely that layer of grime on everything. And then someone, a fellow journalist who's maybe 15 years older than me says, there was a moment in the 80s when they literally went around London with a, a, a blast, like a, a fire engine's blast hose, and and cleaned the physical surface of all these buildings. And London went from looking Dickensian to looking quite fresh as a result of that conscious wow. process, which I have no memory of, but it makes complete sense when you look at a film from 1982, compare it with a film from 1998, uh, the, the, the visible difference is, is pretty striking. At the same time, something else happens, which is that London, like a lot of Western cities, going, goes from being underpopulated, it falls to 6.8 million in 1981, to resurging towards what it is now, which is roughly 9 million, its all-time peak. It happens to New York, it happens to a, a lot of North American cities. They go through a two or three decade lull to do with deindustrialization, people moving out to the suburbs. And then starting in the late 80s, early 90s, there's this a return whatever the opposite of an exodus is, uh, from the suburbs into the city. And so London Fields catches London at that the absolute chronological last point of its um, shabby phase. And that's the, the surfaces and it's the underpopulation. And above all, it's the fact that the, the novel is set in, in and around Ladbroke Grove and Notting Hill when that is not a particularly upscale place to live. And if you think about that area now, uh, the houses are extortionate and uh, every other shop is a pharaoh and ball or something similar. So it, it, it really evokes London before it became like New York, like uh, most Western cities, almost uninhabitably expensive. And the characters that we'll come on to, really the two main characters, the two male characters, Keith Talent and Guy Clinch, sit on two sides of the rail track, so to speak. So then what was your first encounter with Amos, a novelist? I think it would have been, I think I got into him in the same way a lot of people get into bands, which is that you get into another band, you read their interviews, they name check someone else, you know, Oasis name check the Stone Roses or the Beatles, and then you go backwards in time and explore their cultural references. I would have done that. I just can't remember who it was specifically who kept name-checking Amos. It may have been another journalist, may have been a Tony Parsons type of person who just kept dropping in the reference. And on the third or fourth occasion, I troubled myself to go and investigate. And was London Fields the first novel you went to? It was, yeah. I remember it clearly. It was a it was the relatively, it's the modern paperback that you see in shops now with the red cover and a, a tower block on it. And I opened it like a lot of people. And this is something we should get onto. I opened it assuming it was set in London Fields, which is the district in East London that is now uh, very bohemian and, and prosperous. 
And that in itself is fascinating because in 1989, you could release a book called London Fields and people would assume it, it would not be set in London Fields because nobody in the publishing world, in the media world, who was on an upper middle class income was living in London Fields. It was still quite a deprived area back then. Um, everyone understood that London Fields meant a metaphor in the same way that American Pastoral by Philip Roth is a metaphor. You're combined, you know, you're, you're making it sound bucolic and pleasant. The book itself is very dark and grubby. Mm. Martin Amos is doing with London Fields that title, what Philip Roth does about 10 years later with American Pastoral. No one, I, 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 I know I've had people in the publishing world explain this to me. No one in 1989 would have assumed it was set in London Fields. The fact that now, if you carry this book around town, people will look at you and say, oh yeah, I've just moved to London Fields. I need to read that. And I've had that three or four times. Tells you how much London has changed and how the book is a bit of an artifact despite being only you know just over 30 years old. Um, but I chose it, opened it not knowing anything about it, assumed it was going to be set in E8 in Hackney, discovered that it wasn't and really lost myself in in the language more than anything else. And I always say about Amos, this is my advice to people, especially journalists maybe 10 years younger than me. You have to get into Amos and you have to get past Amos. If you don't get into him at all, you can very easily never develop that interest in language, um, that interest in fresh expression. You can you can become a bit prone to cliches if you don't uh, work your way through his argument against cliches, which he really propounds in every single book. But if you get stuck on Amos, you can end up 50 years of age, still overusing adverbs, spectacular metaphors and similes, and you can end up sounding a bit undergraduate at, at, at middle age. Um, and so rereading London Fields recently for this, I've just, you know, it, it has occurred to me how, you know, how overdone some of the prose is, how structurally loose some of it is. And so it's just reinforced my view that you absolutely need to get into him, especially in your 20s, maybe early 30s, but also learn to wean yourself off and use him as a, a gateway drug to maybe more uh, sedate writing later on in life. I think I think that is absolutely the thing to remember going in. He is absolutely essential, I think, for understanding being able to play with language in a way that is both commonsensical and exquisite, but... If you don't move beyond it, you do risk being middle-aged and still sounding like an undergraduate. And to be fair, this series is recognising that moving beyond it doesn't mean never coming back. And by the way, if we're discussing moving on from Amos, he does it. Mm. You know, London Fields is probably his last really extravagant prose novel. There's, you know, there's a bit more um, showiness in the information six years later. But really, after London Fields, he's doing stuff like uh, Times Arrow, which is a bit more clinical, a bit more clean, shorter in length, less Victorian in, in its scope, just a, just a bit more, I don't know, finely edited. You can feel the quality control when it comes to phraseology and, and um, the, the, the fact that he's going for, he's trying to evoke rather than coerce emotions. Gets rid of the adverbs, for example. You know, he's, he's, he's showing rather than telling. Yes. And so Amos himself, after the age of 40, he's 40 when this book comes out, Amos himself gets past Amos 
and it's a, it's a lesson for his audience that um, you know you, you take him up to a certain point and then use him as the as the the bridge to something else. You mentioned adverbs again just then. It sounds to me like this is something that you you consider kind of one of his crutches, a trick he turns too yeah. often for your liking. And and in this book he does it at the beginning of sentences. So he opens a huge number of sentences with, you know, stealthily. Um and it's it's interesting because you often don't begin a sentence with an adverb. But when when you're on the 49th sentence that begins with uh you know, languidly, you you, um, you you do feel you're you're almost reading a newspaper column rather than a novel, which is meant to slowly, especially a big novel like this, which is meant to slowly tease out and evoke things rather than broadly state them. On the other side of the spectrum, the writer that seems to get held up in, in greatest esteem in this country is, of course, George Orwell. You've written several columns about uh, Orwell in the past, and you wrote about Martin Amis after his death. Uh, the point isn't that Amos, a fine comic writer, and Orwell, a great man of the 20th century, are equal. It's just that Amos had a better argument on style. So to talk about Amos as the great stylist, um, you go on to say, there is no causal link between outward plainness and inner wisdom, and the belief otherwise can land entire societies in trouble, take back control, get Brexit done, make America great again. It was simple prose that led mature democracies astray over the past decade. Stylistic writing was always something that had been held against Martin Amis, but at the same time, as you say, plainness can, in fact, also be its own form of manipulation. Yeah, I mean, the, all the popular slogans of the past 10 years or so have been aggressively plain, and therefore you could say Orwellian. And it's, uh, it's distressing to think that Orwell argued that the inoculation against demagogues was plain language um, and that demagogues and, and tyrants and ideologies like communism and fascism relied on on uh, manipulated, overly dense prose in order to bamboozle people. And if you've read an original Marxist text, I mean, it is just, it's like uh, sort of Ezra Pound level, you know, impenetrability. And therefore, he said quite rightly, plain, clear, uh, window-like prose is intrinsically the um, the defence against extremists and um, and populists. And I, I completely would have bought that argument until about 2016, when a referendum is is won by this very, very almost ostentatiously plain language, if there is such a thing. And a U.S. presidential election is one with the same phraseology. And a lot of newspaper columns from that end of the political spectrum use a type of language that is tabloid, even if it's a broadsheet paper using it. And so it's hard to argue now that being plain intrinsically means being common sense in your views. You can you can propound any worldview and express it with almost any prose style. And so the, the Orwell, the Orwellian argument in favour of plainness, uh, which is essentially a, a political argument, seems to hold much less now than it did when he was around. I also think that if you look at Orwell's predictive track record, I don't know why people don't give him enough grief for this. But, you know, 1984 is held to be, very often people will say, prof prophetic. It, it plainly isn't. What happens in 1984 in the UK uh, Thatcher privatizes 
British Telecom. I think there's a big tax-cutting Nigel Lawson budget. Uh, the charts are full of songs like Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. It is not a tyrannical, repressive society in 1984. If anything, it's the opposite. It's a bit too individualistic and libertarian, some would say in retrospect, especially economically. He gets the future wrong to the extent that he's trying to predict the future. I'm not sure he really is, but to the extent he is trying to predict the future of the UK, Airstrip 1, in 1984, he gets it not just wrong, but really what he what he envisions is the opposite of what ends up happening. So he's not correct. And he did fall for socialism. He hasn't got perfect judgment. Uh, you could argue he doesn't have that much common sense in the end. And so you can't say that there is some kind of intrinsic connection between simple prose and sensible views. And Amos spends his career trying to make that point, trying to disentangle these two things. And, you know, politically, he's, you know, what, he's a kind of slightly left of centre, uh, not extreme at all. You know, I think he says, I subscribe to the, lib- to the liberal minimum. He's a kind of sensible guy in his politics in a way that um, you wouldn't assume from his prose, which is very spectacular and very showy. So there really is any, isn't any connection at all between style and substance. And I, I, I just slightly regret that he got to the end of his career without quite winning that argument. I still, people, people still think there's some kind of dignity and, and integrity in, frankly, being boring in your, in your writing. To go back to London Fields then, Amos does his own share of predicting the future. After all, he wrote the novel in 1989, yet he's writing for a large part of the novel about 1999. There are a few things that he misses out. He admits himself that the mobile phone doesn't feature quite as much as it should have done. But there's a lot of talk about the the threat of nuclear war, a sense of the end times, a sense of decline. And you mentioned earlier how, in terms of what London became from the year 2000 onwards, a real shift socially and demographically. And that's, I think, probably where we should come into talking now about the characters. There are, of course, the three, or I should say four main characters. There is Keith Talent, the underclass figure, Guy Clinch on the other side of the tracks. We'll spend a fair bit of time, I think, talking about Nicholas Six. And then, of course, you have the the narrator, the novelist, writing the story and, and tracking the characters and getting tangled up in their lives, Sam. So where do we want to start? Which character should we deal with first? You wrote in your article that Keith Talent is by far Amos's greatest creation. Should we start with him or should we start Absolutely. I, th- I, think, I think he's the greatest Londoner in fiction since, since Dickens. And if, you know, I grew up in Croydon in the 90s and I'm, it's not a million miles away from the truth. So what Amos does with every character, and he admits this, is turn them into a bit of a cartoon, a bit of a grotesque. So he takes reality and exaggerates it by 50%. That's right. He refers to it as banalities thrown with full force. Exactly. He doesn't do the classic novelistic thing or Shakespearean thing, which is immerse yourself in the nuance. He'll he'll go for the primary colours and then really, really paint them. But with Keith's talent, it's not that much of an exaggeration. There are, or there were, characters like him in London. I think slightly less so now because they will have been priced out. But, for example, the fact that he is both a bigot and multiracial in his sexual life was 
a classic London thing, you know. And I grew up with people who were unbelievably, um, we would say, cancelable now in their views on racial minorities or on all, on all minorities and on women. And at the same time, you'd look at their, you'd you know, go home and see how they live, and it was not a uniformly English life that they were living romantically or. You know, you look at their kids, you look at their own relatives. It was a weird bifurcation of the mind uh, that I absolutely recognised when I read those early pages about Keith's talent. I think there's a page where Amish just recites the names of his various lovers. And it's, uh, it's a tour of the world, the, the, the first names of his, of his lovers. Then the little turns of phrase, I think it's the first book where the, the word in it just appears as a piece of punctuation almost every paragraph when Keith is speaking that is a thing that exists maybe more so a generation ago than now but the, the he absolutely has a sense for the little quirks of language that exist in in London or did exist in London there's a bit towards the end where Keith says the phrase or word or term birth certificate and Amos spells it out phonetically in the way that Keith says it. And it's birth certificate. So uh, birth as in the French word for beef and certificate as in the T is in the wrong place or there's an extra T. It's, I, remember, I remember almost physically being taken aback by the accuracy of that. It is how a lot of people would have said the, each of those words. In the last episode, speaking to Sam Leith, we spoke about the time that he spent really immersed in that world, listening very carefully, observing, taking notes of everything. His ear for working class language was pitch perfect. Doesn't last forever, though. I, I think he begins losing it with the information. I think he loses it fairly early on. Right. Okay. Because there's a criminal character, I can't remember his name, it's Steve Cousins or something. And the language is good. It doesn't make, it doesn't startle you with its acuity. And then by Lionel Asbo, he's completely lost it. And it's it's a London I don't I don't recognise. But you feel, having grown up in Croydon, that my name is really was on the money then. Yeah, it's still an exaggeration, but it, it's an exaggeration based on it's it's an exaggeration of twenty percent rather than you know two hundred percent. Tell us more about Keith. He's a bigot, but also a man of the world from his living room. Socially very fluid, but probably hasn't gotten one stamp in his passport in the whole time that he's had it. That's exactly it. And the other thing that dates it a little bit is that I don't think he or any or many of the principal characters now would be English. So Nicola Six is English. I think there's a French element to her, and I've heard Amos pronounce her name Nicola Six um, in a radio interview once. But you assume she's English or a British citizen anyway. Uh, Keith Talent obviously is. Guy Clinch obviously is. At least one or two of them now would be uh, non-UK citizens maybe the majority of them would be but the the really fascinating thing about keith's talent is just the, the desperate ambition to better himself which is one of the few occasions in the book and one of the few occasions in amos's work where he really does evoke uh, a sense of the poignant and there are moments when he says you know the the last time keith's talent was in his bedroom his childhood bedroom all he could think about was how to escape He's got this raging ambition to better himself. And it's a huge theme in English entertainment and culture. If you think about Del Boy and Only Fools and Horses, or you think about Steptoe and Son, 
the person who is keen to improve themselves, humiliates themselves in the process, is looked down upon by people are rung up and is you know resented by people are rung, are rung below on the income scale. Amos absolutely gets that. And it's interesting that he gets it because he's from a relatively privileged background, novelist father. They weren't rich, but they were kind of bohemian Londoners. The intelligentsia, as Kingsley Amos once referred to the family. And I, I live on a street where the Amoses lived briefly in the 70s or 80s. Where I live now is, is just around the corner from this unbelievably nice house, which is now lived in by a pop star that most people have heard of, uh, where the Amoses, when Martin was a teenager, I think, lived briefly. And so it was a nice upbringing, uh, as cultured as you could get. And yet he's got this, this um, acute insight into someone who doesn't have that education absolutely does not have the money and is desperate to acquire at least the, the second of those things. So I don't think Amos gets quite enough credit in this book for his ability to do what most people say he can't do, he, he, he cannot do, which is evoke emotion, leave the jokes aside for at, at least a little while and get into the, the sadder, deeper side of someone's inner life. His relatively well-to-do upbringing, I think, meant that a lot of the readers he attracted thought that a sort of person like him would write the sort of novel they would enjoy, and then actually found that the characters were the sort of people that they would cross the road to avoid. But as he had to remind people, he was willingly immersed in this world when he was in his younger years. He was instinctively drawn towards the betting shops and the back alleys and the nasty pubs. Sam and I also spoke in the last episode about this theme of nominal determinism in a lot of his characters' names. There is more than one Keith throughout his repertoire, and there's always a certain Keithness to the Keiths. But I've realised that with London Fields, the nominal determinism comes in very much with the surnames too. As you mentioned, Keith Talent is obsessed with bettering himself and showing the world his talent as a darts player. Guy Clinch, he always finds himself between a rock and a hard place. Nicholas Six, a name that Keith mishears as sex when he first meets her, has a sinister deathliness about her. Growing up in Croydon, did you feel like you met at least one Keith Talent? Did you feel like you knew the sort of person that he was writing about? You'd seen that person? I, I would have seen them. Um, you have to remember Keith Talent is, by the way, this is the question that always tricks people. How old do you think Keith Talent is? Amos lets you know once. Yes. He's in his late 20s. He's 29. Yeah. And almost everyone will assume that he's about 42 or something. He's got a sort of middle-aged wear and tear on him that that radiates from the page. And I've introduced the book to several friends and they've always I've always posed that question to them and they guess something like 40. He's 29. And it gives you another sense of <laughs> how quickly people aged. In, in the relatively recent past. I mean, if you just look at someone who was, you know, 29 was considered all getting on for middle age uh, not that long ago. And the average age people got married, the average age people had kids, the average age people were treated as middle age was much younger in the past. And the, the pro prolongation of adolescence that has taken place is, since then can be quite a jarring thing when you try and read this book because he comes across as, as much older. But uh, I, I, I would have seen people like him. I'm, I, you know, I may have gone to school with people who ended up having uh, a tough time in life. I wouldn't have known someone exactly like him just because I would have been 10 years too young at the minimum. 
but in yeah in in pubs outside pubs there would have been and it's it's you know when he describes the the biro chained to the desk of a betting shop when he describes the finger slightly um browned or yellowed when he describes just the the physical texture of Keith's talent it's completely familiar and it was familiar until about i would guess the mid 90s late 90s when a lot of characters like Keith would have moved out of town because they were priced out and so the texture of the city changed but i i do find him more familiar than almost any amos character and i think the the crucial thing we'll get onto this when we discuss guy clinch what changes for amos is that he has kids he becomes uh, a family man and that necessarily means he just can't spend the time pounding the streets in the way that he would have done in his youth or in his 20s and so that's that's where he kind of loses touch with people like keith and resorts to people like Lionel Lasbo who's a complete grotesque and cartoon. We'll come on to Guy Clinch in a moment then, but it sounds to me like this is a good time to open London Fields in front of you and maybe find a passage that introduces Keith in Martin Amis's words. Yeah. A casual data or arrowman all his life, right back to the bald board on the kitchen door. Keith had recently got serious. He'd always thrown for his pub, of course, and followed the sport. You could almost hear the angels singing when on those special nights, three or four times a week, Keith laid out the cigarettes on the arm of the couch and prepared to watch darts on television. But now he had designs on the other side of the screen. To his own elaborately concealed astonishment, Keith found himself in the last 16 of the Sparrow Masters, an annual interpub competition which he had nonchalantly entered some months ago on the advice of various friends and admirers. At the end of that road, there basked the contingency of a televised final, a £5,000 check, and a playoff, also televised, with his hero and darting model, the world number one, Kim Twemlow. After that, well, after that, the rest was television. And television was all about everything he did not have, and was full of all the people he did not know, and could never be. Television was the great shop front, lightly electrified, up against which Keith crushed his nose. And now among the squirming moats, the impossible prizes, he saw a doorway, or an arrow, or a beckoning hand with a dart in it, and everything said darts, pro darts, world darts. He's down there in his garage, putting in the hours, his eyes still stinging from the ineffable, the heartbreaking beauty of a brand new dartboard stolen that very day. When we first meet Keith, he's entered his favourite pub, which you mentioned there, the Black Cross, and Guy Clinch comes along, and he gets Guy out of a bit of a bind, perhaps the first clinch that we find Guy Clinch in. So tell us a little bit about Guy Clinch. What does Guy Clinch represent, other than the clear class distinction? Guy Clinch represents something which, when I read the book at around twenty nine thirty, I didn't quite understand and at 41, I completely understand, which is domestic frustration and mediocrity. He is very well off. His wife is very well off. They have an ostensibly glamorous life in uh, West London. But the child they have, Marmaduke, is uh, a nightmare. It's um, The marriage is clearly past its 
passionate phase. He feels confined. He feels clinched. And Keith to him represents the opposite of all that. He represents abandon and uh, freedom. And so the relationship between them, the real tension between them is not really class at all. It's uh, bravery. I think Guy conceives of Keith as someone who does what he wants, is not constrained by other people, uh, and regards himself as really the prisoner of his circumstances. So reading it when I first did, he was a funny character. Reading him now, when I can observe marriages or failed marriages around me, he's actually quite a poignant character. And in that sense, again, Amos does what he doesn't get enough credit for uh, throughout his work, which is elicit an emotional response from the reader, not just a chuckle. You wrote in your column that one of the broad lessons of life that Martin Amos passed on to you was that you don't get very far in this life being a good egg. And it sounds to me, though, you didn't make it explicit in the column that you were referring to Guy Clinch in that. Yeah, I suppose in the... In the in a modern context, you'd call him a chump or a sap. And while Amos holds back when it comes to deliberate epithets, direct epithets, he uses every other indirect, indirect way of saying, this is a guy who had all the in inherited advantages in life that you could want, the good looks, the money, the social capital, as we'd, as we'd now call it. And he's managed to end up with this hugely frustrating life simply because he won't stand up for himself and he's a bit of a doormat. And it is a running theme in Amos's work, the idea that in order to avoid that fate, you need a little bit of devil in you. Um, the, the, the men in particular who come a cropper in his novels will be just a tad too innocent. And you can imagine Amos as a young guy growing up falling foul of that trap. I imagine there, he, he suffered humiliations and made obvious mistakes, but somehow cottoned on early on that uh, you had to be ruthless and endure the accusation of coldness, which he still gets, um, in order to live the life that you want and to impose your will on life. And Guy Clinch really is someone who is the opposite of all that and in, essentially allows life to happen to him. So it's, it's a cautionary tale. It's the biggest cautionary tale of all of the Amos characters, I think, um, in all of his work. And only just behind Keith Talent as a recognisable character. If you get to middle age and you look around, especially in a city like London, you will know more than one Guy Clinch. Of course, a lot of these conversations come at some point to the subject of masculinity. And as you've just outlined there, you have in Keith Talent and Guy Clinch two very different masculine personas, the rugged, devil-may-care, working-class Keith Talent, and then the very gentlemanly, effete, angst-ridden and, well, civilised figure cut in Guy Clinch. I mean, much as he might have left you with this impression that good guys finish last, he remains, to his last days, somebody who advocated for kinder, more feminine virtues. He certainly believed that a world that would mend from the, I guess you can call the toxic masculinity of previous centuries, would be mended in the hands of women. So perhaps he would look at Guy Clinch now as being more, I don't know, that the Guy Clinches of this world actually are going to be more rewarded going forward in a world which has started to look at masculinity in a different way. No, I think you're completely right that a generation on, he probably would have looked at Guy Clinch and said, 
you are less objectionable and a more plausible vision for male behavior than he, Amos, perceived in 1989. Or he would offer his wife, Hope Clinch, um, a bigger role in the novel or use her as um, the vehicle in the way that Guy clinches. I'm not sure Amos ever personally makes the transition from the Keith world to the Guy world. I mean, he, he does have kids and a family. He begins to make the case for domesticity in some of his interviews, but he always retains that edge. He almost relishes too much the fact that he is regarded as unreconstructed. Um, with with the release of every novel in the 90s and 2000s, he'd almost craft a provocative uh, aggressively anti-PC thing to say, which would you know be partly a commercial tactic to get the book talked about, but also I think annoy people he wanted to annoy because he was liberal, fractionally to the left, I would guess, on economics, but always had that difficult relationship with the cultural left. He never wanted to be perceived as priggish or censorious. Um, never seemed to mind the accusations of of being an unreconstructed 1970s man. And so I'm, sure, I'm not sure he ever becomes the delicate, put-upon, willing victim that Guy Clinch is in the novel. He always retains an element of contempt for the Guy Clinches of this world. Um, and really his heart is, is with Keith. I can't think of a novel where he ultimately synthesizes it and says, this is what modern masculinity should look like. Um, because he, he ultimately he's, he doesn't like blending things. He doesn't like dwelling too much on nuance. It's always about the primary color. It's always about the grotesque. And some would say that is ultimately why he never won the top literary prizes. If you believe that what novels do is embrace nuance and human complexity, his fascination was more with human extremes. And so if you were the Booker Committee or the Pulitzer Committee or whoever, um, he was he was too much of a cartoonist. To speak to the point you made just then about nuance and about trying to render a very three-dimensional persona, he says, political readers are not very good readers. Martin Amos says they're always looking for people that they can believe really do exist. And they just become, as he put it, political registers rather than readers. So um, as I say, many people couldn't handle those primary colours. But to take... Again, Keith Tarns and Guy Clinch, uh, you have in the middle this character of Nicola Six, who is referred to as the murderee to distinguish her from the femme fatale. She even says herself in the novel, I'm not a femme fatale, I'm a murderee. Very complex character, incredibly important. And to take us away for a moment from the male characters, where do we start with Nicola Six and her relationship to these two men who ultimately fight over her? I think she is what lets the book down. She is every bit as one-dimensional or two-dimensional as the critics would suggest. That becomes more obvious the older you get. She is essentially a sexual hologram. She exists to be attractive to both men. And she doesn't even say much that's very interesting. The, the, the turns of phrase that even Keith, with all his lack of education, can come up with, that, that Amos ventriloquizes through... Keith, don't really exist for Nicola. It's all quite distant, terse stuff from her. And so I think she does just pull the book out of shape. What could have been a 
duality, essentially a conversation between Keith and Guy about their two different modes of living, the two sides of London they represent. And by the way, London is absolutely captured in the fact that someone very poor and someone very rich can live so close in, in, in a single postcode. Wouldn't happen in Paris. There'd be a much bigger physical separation. Wouldn't happen in most North American cities. But the book should have been that. And the, 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 what lets it down and what makes it almost unpleasant in parts is the character of Nicola, who exists to be essentially a blank canvas upon which Keith and Guy, and you'd have to assume ultimately the author, projects fantasies. Does that give her less or more power in the novel? Because Amos always argued for Nicola Six's role in the book as being, yes, a blank canvas onto which the men project ideas, but who is willfully manufacturing those ideas. She's in control. She's the puppeteer. Amos says this quite a lot. Whenever he gets stick for a female character who is over-sexualized or underdeveloped in character terms, he'll always say, well, if you read closely, she's manipula- manipulating everyone. And I think it's it's... I don't think she's manipulating. I mean, ultimately, she gets killed. Uh, and she knows that from the beginning. The fact that two men fancy her doesn't offset that. It's quite a... It's not, it's not much of a consolation if you're Nicola Six that you can bewitch two men for a period if ultimately your central purpose in the book is to is to be murdered. So I've never found that a sufficient justification for even the existence of the character of Nicola. And it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's not a, it's so much a moral objection. It's just a technical critic's objection that the novel would have been more successful, more coherent, perhaps more likely to have won the Booker in 89, had it been really focused on the Keith Guy dualism than being a kind of sexual fantasy with a bit of Keith and Guy thrown in. Um, and I, I can't imagine why you thought it, it, would, it would make the... Because you can actually... It's, 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 a, it's like a song from which you can remove the bass line and improve it. It's, it's, it's not a difficult technical feat to just say, we're not going to have the Nicola Six interludes because they're just too crass and too bleak and um, too separate from the main thrust of the novel, which is capturing modern London. There's nothing modern London about her. There's nothing modern any city about her. You know, she exists outside as a as a fantasy figure, and so I'm. I just think it was a technical mistake, and it it meant it meant that possibly his most impressive book underperformed critically and absolutely underperformed in terms of literary prizes. And I and I don't particularly blame the judges for withholding the big awards um, on the basis of that really underwritten, underdeveloped, unnecessary character. I'm curious to know now whether there is a passage in the book that you feel demonstrates that technical problem to really convey Nicola Six as a either plausible or essential character. What there is in the book is a recurring metaphor involving black holes and a particular sex act, which even if you don't think is sexist or crass, is just not funny. It's sort of adolescent. And Amos is 40 when he writes it, or you know, late 30s when he writes it, 40 when it comes out. And you think, had you removed that, had you removed the character, used Hope Clinch 
as the lead female character in the book. It would have been a much more textured and real work. But one of the problems with, I mean, the ultimate proof that uh, Nicola is underdeveloped as a character is it's not easy to cite individual passengers. You you know, you'll, you'll have a bit where Hope and Guy are interacting in a very sad and quite typical way for a for a married couple and then they'll just be inserted into that a Nicholas Six passage which is extraneous and artificial and it's it's just a a literary device that manages to make the book worse i felt very much reading the book that Nicholas Six being so many things to so many people i don't think we get a clear sense that beneath all of the personas the aliases, you know, she goes by Enola Gay. She gives various elaborate names to different types of kisses that she gives men. Again, you feel that Martin Amos is very much enjoying constructing this fantasy figure. I don't think that we get beneath all of that a real sense of who she is. I, I think he, he uses the Nicholas X passages almost as a place in which to throw undeveloped thoughts about everything. So, you know, a running theme in the book is nuclear weapons and uh, this is an this is a real amos bugbear he seems to discover in the mid 80s that these things called nuclear weapons exist and that they're bad he hasn't got anything profound or original to say about them but he'll just throw in lots of references into a number of books but in particular this book another theme is environmental collapse you know the skies over london in this book are i think either sort of darkish, greenish, blackish colour, which is indicative of acid rain. And these are undeveloped thoughts, but he'll use them in close proximity with the Nicholas Six passages. And it's almost as if I'm going to do these digressive bits, centre them around her to pad out what is really quite a, a thin, unnecessary character, because I need to be seen to have big thoughts. You know, he's, he's done a hugely successful novel, which is money, but maybe not the deepest novel. Lots of success as a guy in his 20s as well in the, in the 1970s. It's now time for me as Britain's national author, almost, which is what he is at the turn of the 90s, to expound in the way that Ian McEwan does 20 years later on issues of the day. But ultimately, he just he isn't a columnist. He doesn't have things to say about politics, global warming, nuclear fission. And so he just it's a very scattergun set of thoughts. And they all seem to attach to her. She sort of represents the apocalypse and the end. And of course, she suffers an end at the end. And it's not enough. It's, it's, um, it's, I think you could almost see it as two novels and you could extract the inferior one without a huge amount of technical work. And, you know, when I said earlier that I dip into the book at sort of 50 page spurts, you can already guess which bits I leave out. Again, last episode, listeners will remember Sam Leith talking about him becoming the novelist of big ideas, heat death of the universe. He writes about the eclipse in the late 90s as it would be nuclear war, all of which, as Sam said, was designed to make him grander in his thinking and his imposition on the story and on the characters. And and those are things you would, you would say could be removed and you would have still this this brilliant story of the two men. Well, you'd have a better, uh, the two men plus hope clinch. I think that would have been the moral core of the book. But you, I think younger listeners will have a, you know, you have to explain to younger listeners and maybe even to someone of my age, how big a deal Amos was uh, and how close he was to be considered, 
yes, Enfant Terrible and a, a raffish character, but really the central figure in British serious fiction. And therefore the pressure on him to expound and columnize and turn into a bit of a journalist. And he never quite develops a knack for it. Some of his nonfiction essays are really good. But the, the thing he's trying to do, which is weave nonfiction thoughts, journalistic thoughts into his fiction, doesn't work in London Fields. I can't think of a later novel in which it does work. And the only person who I can think who does it in a, you know, in a kind of non-embarrassing way really is McEwen. It's not profound what McEwen does with his later novels about climate change or the treatment of children of religious parents in the Children Act. But it's at least it's kind of not it doesn't induce a cringe in the way that London Fields sometimes does. And I say it's, I say this as a fan of the book and a fan of the author, but it's very easy, and even as a first-time reader, to detect what you would take out of the book. I think it does work much better in the information, if I'm honest. The allusions he makes to astrology and cosmology do work in the context of the story about Richard Tull and Gwyn Barry and this, this rather petty rivalry of two writers. But I think you're right. It's very heavy and apocalyptic. And I think maybe it's worth mentioning that, of course, London Fields was turned into, by all accounts, I haven't yet seen it, a pretty god-awful film. Again, if you're talking about the book in this way, where you say there are two novels there, one of which could be removed, then turn that into a film is to almost perfect its flaws. I completely, I, I couldn't finish the film. <laughs> you saw it. Yeah, I did. I, I, I think I downloaded it on iTunes and couldn't get to the end of it. And I, I as I say, I'm a enormous admirer of the book in general was absolutely agog in anticipation of the film and it, it just dies on screen and it's because of that extraneous superfluous thread that runs all the way through it I think that I wonder whether it's ever possible to be a really great novelist of political ideas in that I think Roth said once that what the novelist deals in is specificity, you know, the, the particular. You're always zooming into the particular tick of body language, this particular character trait, the particular turn of phrase that re reveals someone's underlying inner life. And yet what Amos makes Richard Tull say in the information is what the novelist is always aiming to win is the universal. Yeah, exactly. It's the tension between the... Can you be good at the universal, the, the, the big thematic thought or proposition if your core responsibility is to vote, is to evoke the specificities and the particularities of life, can you go subatomic and universal at the same time? Uh, I'm not aware of someone. I mean, someone will say the great Russians, Dostoevsky, for example, could do both, could zoom into the absolute human minutiae and then say something very deep about the Orthodox Church and Russian nationalism. But in the last 50 years, Especially, especially in this country, I think it's always been a trap that novelists fall into, the, the, the idea that they have to expound. And uh, you would think Amos, of all people, who really does care about the art, who has, as you said earlier, that suspicion of the political reader, would not have fallen into that trap. And by, by the way, I think he kind of gets out of the trap later on in his career. He doesn't really go on about nuclear weapons. I think there's an interview where a cheeky interviewer says to him, well, 30 years after his big nuclear anxiety phase, uh, they, they, they still haven't gone off yet, have they? <laughs> they haven't been used yet, have they, since 1945? And Amos sort of concedes the point and says, you know, we're in a different world now. It's no longer a bipolar conflict between the US and the Soviets. 
there are other issues. And, and so in a, in a non, non-humiliating way, he does sort of put the issue to bed for a while. So he grows out of it, but uh, it takes him a while. And I just wish he didn't feel the pressure to, to behave like someone in my profession. So if we were to dip into the book again and find another passage that you've uh, reserved to, to recite, where are we going in the story now and, and why did you choose it? We are going to the domestic life of Guy Clinch and Hope Clinch, which at one stage would have been happy and has now become very stressful. They've got a child who's an absolute uh, demon to look after. That's right, Marmaduke, who Marmaduke. really stan- he stands out. Even the name is just exquisite. And this passage kind of gives you an early indication of the stresses of domestic life. Guy Clinch had everything. In fact, he had two of everything. Two cars, two houses, two uniform nannies, two silk and cashmere dinner jackets, two graphite-cooled tennis rackets, and so on and so on. But he only had one child and only one woman. After Marmaduke's birth, things changed. Nothing had prepared him or anybody else for Marmaduke. World-famous paediatricians marvelled at his hyperactivity. Often he would take a brief nap around midnight the rest of the time he was spent screaming. Hope still spent much of her time in bed, with or without Marmaduke, but never with Guy. All night, he lay dressed for disaster in one of the two visitors' rooms, wondering why his life had suddenly turned into a very interesting and high-toned horror film. His habitual mode of locomotion around the house became the tiptoe. When Hope called his name, Guy... And he replied, yes. There was never any answer, because his name meant, come here. And once again, I'm reminded of the column that you wrote, because you picked this out. You said, you've never laughed harder at a line. You laugh harder with the years, because you see it happen around you. And if you are a bachelor, your insight into domestic family life has to be vicarious. It has to come from friends that you observe. And from what I have been able to observe over the past, I don't know, decade, that is, in classic Amisian style, an exaggeration, but not a complete travesty of the reality of domestic life with a very young child, even for people who are, who are prosperous. And, you know, the, the clinches are uh, minimum upper middle income, uh, Westbourne Grove, Notting Hill, type of people. So they've got advantages most people don't have. And yet you can feel just pulsating off the page the the, the, the stress and the, and the heartache of that stage of parenthood. And that's with, I think, one child. I don't think they have more than Marmaduke. Again, to talk about cartoonish characters, there are two children in this book. There's Marmaduke, Guy Clinch's son, Hope Clinch's son. And then there's Kim, who is Keith and his wife, Kath's daughter. And he says that the contrast between these two children, he's exaggerating, but Marmaduke is a kind of personification of the inbuilt tendencies of men towards destruction. You know, to talk about nuclear war, he says there should be emblazoned above the Pentagon, boys will be boys. And again, you're left to conclude, I mean, he says somewhere in his later interviews that um, you can tell a sexist often because 
they'll, I think, put women on or put a woman on a pedestal. And he kind of falls into a trap here where he, he, he literally ascribes uniform characteristics to the the two kids based on based on sex and again it's it's Amos theorizing and broadening out from the particular into grand statements and you, until you'd mentioned Kim I'd forgotten that she was such a prominent part of the book that that's how unsatisfactory I think the rendering of her mm-hmm. is someone did point out once that uh Vulnerable girls are a theme in Amos's work that he himself doesn't realize until a friend of his or a relative of his points it out in his 40s, I think, um, that there is this uh, recurring subject and character. And of course, he had an odd experience and that was it his sister or his cousin, Lucy Partington, who had a, met, met a horrible end. And Amos has got that, you know, he always says you write from the back of your brain, not from the front of your brain. And whatever recurs in your prose, you almost need someone to point out from you. It's, it's, a, it's something that's going on in your subconscious or semi-conscious. Um, and you can only tell in retrospect that it was there. And that idea of the vulnerable female, in this case, she's vulnerable because her, <laughs> her dad is Keith and her mum is, what, Kath. Is not unique to this book. It just is a a missing fixation, which is interesting. But when he then tries to infer from that a broader theory about men and women, and specifically the idea that war is, um, I don't know, intrinsically masculine, you begin to think you've left your box, you've left your metier, and turned into a sort of Freudian. So yeah, he, he deals in absolutes generally, and with women, he, abs- he really deals with absolutes. And it's it's a puzzle to me because if you think about his own tastes in literature, he does love nuance. You know, he's uh, there's he doesn't just love Shakespeare, but I think when he left university, the academics said you could, if you wanted to, be an outstanding Shakespeare scholar. You have a, a really granular sense of the work. And the fact that it is all about ambiguity and that not just Hamlet, but really um, all of Shakespeare's best characters are very finely drawn and are never all of a piece. So Amos absorbs all that, is enthusiastic about all that in the work of other people. And yet in his own work, by his own admission as well, uh, deals in ones and zeros. Um, I don't know why he pushes it in particular with women, but it, it, it just—it's unavoidable. If you're if you're an Amos reader, I'm trying to think of one really textured female character, maybe in the later novels, um, which are quite romantically focused, House of Meetings or something like that. Mm. There's something, but it, it's it's all black and white, and I wonder why he didn't set himself the challenge. Once he, once he showed beyond doubt that he could do the cartoon in you know, success, in money, why he didn't try and do a pure sort of Flaubertian kind of um, social realist novel. Do you think that London Fields is Martin Amis's most Shakespearean novel? It's got the, it's got the Shakespearean farce and the interest in the, in the ribald. It's got a 
fairly broad spectrum of society, which I suppose is is more Dickensian than Shakespearean, but it's both. But ultimately, the, the, the you know if you're if you buy the Harold Bloom thesis, the the glory of Shakespeare is that his characters are not primary colours; they are every colour, um, and all the glory is in the nuance and the surprises and the self conflict. And ultimately, this book is the opposite of all that. So it's I find it more of a Dickensian book. Another another writer who sort of dealt in pastiches. Um, but where 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 you do see the Shakespearean fandom that Amos had is just the 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 reveling in language and just find, trying to find a vivid phrase for every banal object on the planet. I think he describes a tower block as the severed leg of a Titanic robot, and it, and he just it that's one thing in one paragraph, and there's there's one on there's two or three on every page. Is there one last passage we can end on? Something that you feel lets the sun go down on this book for now until somebody decides as a result of listening to this to pick it up and start the journey? This is the narrator, an American in London, taking a walk and suffering an unpleasant fate. At one point, as I walked under a tree, I felt the warm kiss of a voluptuous dewdrop on my crown. Gratefully, and there's an adverb, I ran a hand through my hair, and what do I find? Bird shit, pigeon shit. I'm feeling okay for once, I'm feeling medium cool, and a London pigeon goes and takes a dump on my head. It had this effect on me. Despair. I swore and stumbled around, bedraggled, helpless, the diet of a London pigeon being something that really doesn't bear thinking about. I mean, what the digestive system of a London pigeon considers as waste. Janan Ganesh, thank you so much for this. I'm looking forward to the release of this episode and to future episodes. But for now, it's been a pleasure to revisit London Fields with you and to discuss your memories of the late, great Martin Amos. Thanks again. It's been fun and good luck with the rest of the Amos canon. <laughs>